I think most people that I know, they looked at it as it's a break. It's a break from getting off the streets. It's a break from, from you know, trying to figure out where you're going to sleep at night, who you're going to meet, whether you're going to get bashed, whether you're going to get assaulted, whether, you know, am I safe here, am I safe there? And, and I, I think most of the people on the street that I have interacted with, I can't obviously speak for everyone, I think that it was looked at as a break from the chaos of homelessness. It seemed sort of convenient at the same time that the hotel industry was ailing that uh, and, you know, had been significantly impacted on, the, the government provided some incentives to house people. From my perspective, I think, I guess hotels decided to engage in this, not altruistically, but as a sort of opportunistic cash grab. I know that in other countries... Activists were strongly advocating for people to be housed in hotels rather than in shelters, for example, due to issues around social distancing. So I suppose in an international context, it was one thing that the government did respond to, but I wonder if it was also through a desire to avoid critique rather than because of any sort of genuine concern for uh, people with not so much access to stable housing. I was kind of, you know, kind of nervous and, you know, like shocked because I didn't know what the what the COVID was, you know, so we didn't know if, if I was going to get it or my partner was going to get it. So I was shocked and, you know, confused and nervous. So we were running around trying to get off the street and then, yeah, we've heard from a few other homeless people that there were services giving motel accommodation, so we jumped on it, jumped aboard, so yeah. Just being secure, you know, not looking over your shoulders all the time, where you sleep on the streets and you've got to, you know, close up one eye. You don't know what's coming around the corner. Where in the motel you're, you're a whole lot better safer, yeah. Everyone thinks it's all uh, yay, 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 but uh, I think bad things do happen in there. Um, a lot of bad things, whether you're involved or not, sometimes as well. So sometimes you're just in the middle of shit that you don't want to be in, and it's all because of people in those motels. So um, at the same time, all the violence around as well, you could be anybody in the, you know, in the halls or anywhere that can get hurt or so. So, um, yeah, I would tell them that it's not all happy and... Uh, rainbows as you think it is it's a bit harder than you think kind of got to stick to yourself otherwise yeah goes a different way we've got to understand that why are we being put into a hotel we didn't understand that and what benefits is going to do for us out of it all right if we're in a hotel now as is when i come out am i going to be different or what benefits am i going to see on the estate for being put into there. I got put into there as is and I left I reckon I worse because then I had to start all over again. You know, find my own accommodation again and this and that and get back on track to get back to where I was staying and it, it just um, I don't think it was about the, the the pandemic I think it was just the government trying to make it look good that we got those people off the streets 
And so anyone that looked around said, oh, look, Melbourne looks nice and clean now. But really, if they took pictures of the hotels that where people were at, like this hotel, that hotel, and then you'll probably have, say, 50, 50 photos of all the hotels, and then you'll see, hang on, this doesn't look too good. Suddenly you've got a whole bunch of people concentrated in the one space, and for some people that increased feelings of, you know, lack of safety, and for some people it was just hanging, you know, being around people they didn't necessarily want to be around. It's very limiting, being limited just to one room. I mean, most of us were limited to a whole house, and that was um, difficult enough. But to, to have just one room um, and to be a bit nervous about what you're going to encounter when you leave that room, I think is very difficult. In early 2021... As the COVID-19 virus swept across the world and made its inevitable way to Australia, emergency hotel accommodation became available en masse to people experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. Thousands of people and families stayed in hotels and motels across the city, from four-star places in the CBD to suburban joints further away. For most Melburnians, the COVID-19 pandemic is the only pandemic we have ever experienced and it had a major impact on our lives, from changing the way we work, to isolating us from the people we love, and destroying our social lives and the things we like to do outside the home. But what was it like to experience homelessness during the biggest pandemic in 100 years? Welcome to Homeless in Hotels, health, services and peer voices in the COVID-19 pandemic. This radio series has been created to give a voice to homeless peers who stayed in emergency hotel accommodation during the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, we wanted to hear the stories of how people manage their alcohol or drug use, or just their health and well-being during this time. Over a few months in 2021, we spoke with both peers and workers about their experience living and working through the COVID-19 pandemic, where curfews and lockdowns abounded and health services had to change the way they operated. Over the course of three episodes, you will get a chance to go behind the scenes and get an understanding of what life was like as a homeless person staying in hotels during COVID-19. Some stories may shock you. Some may make you laugh. Others may make you think. These stories are straight from the source. They are stories told by the people who live them and in their own way. We hope you enjoy the series. Let's meet the team. This is episode one. You could get it in the hotel.
please be advised that this episode contains explicit language and content that may distress some listeners, such as drug use and suicide. So I became homeless due to COVID-19. I'm an independent sex worker. I'm licensed to do what I do. I love, very empowered and proud of what I do. And then obviously during COVID, the industry was advised that we weren't allowed to work, which in a sense makes sense. So obviously I followed the restrictions, did the right things. In turn, my income stopped and I couldn't pay rent and things like that. So became homeless ending up in hotels, and then here we are, <laughs> still still homeless, still in a hotel and still waiting for the next step on my journey. To this day, I still hate the fact that I did the right thing because, you know, during COVID, there are a lot of people in lockdown by themselves. They didn't have family. They didn't have, you know, they weren't living with a partner or anything, so they were incredibly alone and so one I could have made bank and two I could have made a difference like in my job I'm a professional I don't do my job because I'm a drug addict I'm paying for a habit I don't do my job because I'm being forced to I do it because I love what I do I'm very proud of the industry and I do it incredibly professionally and so I was like at the time and still actually now I think about it and I get more passionate about it and I'm like I'm a professional I know how to distance myself I get tested I'm very very clean very by the book and you know when it came to COVID I was like we are the people that yeah okay it can be quite dangerous and I get it but at the same time there are a lot of people because everyone's alone mental health skyrocketed if, you know, the professionals that were aware or, you know, there was something put in place where working girls could do something in a safe environment where it could help somebody alone during that time to feel less alone and help with their mental health, that obviously wasn't an option. And I could have made bank as well. Like, I could have got rich. But, I again, I love my job, and so I did the right thing because I want to do the right thing. And in turn, homelessness. For the people out there who do think that, you know, homeless are, who cares, you know, they're homeless for a reason. Or, or, some people aren't just homeless for, you know, or, some people actually have problems to why they're homeless. And um, it, it really is hard because, you know, the good ones like myself, who don't go sitting on the sidewalk, you know, homeless is crap all around me and on drugs and swearing around it, it's it's really hard for us people who do want to do good and look after ourselves and have a home because yeah we we get a lot of discrimination from other people who walk past and stuff and other services but yeah it's really hard you know with food you know keeping warm even being safe out on the streets when you do find somewhere to sleep you don't know what's going to happen or who's going to come by or whatever. So, yeah, it's more than hard. It's difficult. It's, yeah, life-challenging. I was literally on the streets. So the first bit, then I was in a motel for over three months, and then the rest of lockdown I was still on the streets. 
It was uh, hard. It was so hard. Harder than what it is, you know, it not being locked down. Um, you just had to be careful where you slept. You can't just sleep anywhere like you're able to now because you get a fine. They, uh, the cops were just, yeah, anyone they seen out, they were chasing after him. And also it was just empty because everyone else is in motels, so you weren't really around other people. It was just empty streets. It was like a ghost town literally in the city of lights, but, yeah, very lonely, I'd say it was, yeah. Were people in the hotels thinking about the pandemic? Or? No, definitely no. We all knew what was going on, but I think that everyone was kind of partying on because they all had their own motel room and was just using and using and using. So they all knew the rules and the you know the social distancing shit, but no, nah, it did not happen at all inside the motels. We were all together, there was people together, walking around 24-7, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of different people, a lot. The environment was just drugs, 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 literally just a lot of drugs um, and a lot of all different types as well. It wasn't just the one type. And because of that, there was a lot of drama on each level because, you know, buying this, selling that. There was a lot of punch-ons, a lot of fights, um, a lot of violence. There was no stopping people from getting anyone in your rooms. If people wanted to get into your rooms, they'd just kick it in or, you know, you, you couldn't leave your door open or anything like that. A lot of people were getting robbed. A lot of people, yeah. So a lot of bad things happened. The, there was at least uh, every drug you could think of. Um, I think the one that wasn't really there was cocaine, but ice, heroin, juice, which is GHB, pills, uh, party drugs, yeah, just all of those. They were in the motel because there was, as what everyone says, dealers and stuff, you know. Yeah, they were everywhere, literally everywhere, and there was a lot of them in the uh, motels. And because it was everyone from the streets, everyone does drugs. So those, they were just, each hall was just filled with drugs. Each room was just filled with drugs, Um yeah, people were bringing them in, people were coming there to buy it and then leaving with them. Um, yeah, it was it was just everywhere. I can't say there was nothing, no drugs at all. There was there was a lot. It was pretty full on. And it's because it's all, a lot, like all of the drugs, like there was just so many different types of people who even weren't there were just standing at the front, you know, waiting for their next, yeah, pick up. <laughs> All hours of the morning too wasn't just during the day. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. And you'd just hear it all night as well, you know, people screaming in the halls or knocking on each other's doors or music playing from that room. And it's, yeah, ridiculous hours, but they're all on drugs. So <laughs> so not respecting social distancing? No, definitely no. That was – I didn't even think there was social distancing in that um, motel at all. <laughs> I mean, it was the law, but it wasn't being abided by. I felt amazing. I felt like I was like, you know, God, I'm in a room. You know, me and my missus waking up mornings on coffees. You know, the normal things. Like, I we used to wake up the pigeons pecking my head, you know, sleeping on the footpaths and all that, and then people stealing, you know, some of your bags and clothes. But 
was mad. Like, I could come back to my room and I know all my clothes are there. Like, normally I have, like, five, six trackies taken off me because I'm picky with my clothes. So when you're living on the street, like, people say, people say like, night tracksuit, bang, you're gone. You're asleep. You're not going to wake up in a flick of a second. So it was good to walk into a room where all my stuff was. It was good to sit down and listen to a TV in the room. Like, you, you know, I'm sitting on a toilet, I can hear a TV. Like, it's weird. It was, it was weird, but it felt good. Like, it took me back to my childhood. Like, it felt like, you know, I was in, you know, in a house. She's just mad, you know. Like, I'm speaking to friends on the phone. Like, look, I'm in a room. Like, they're like, good on ya, you know. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going for a sleep now. Say, bye, hang up. And I'm sleeping. I wake up, like, probably two days later. And it's like, wow, I slept for two days in a bed, you know. It was amazing. Like, I had good, good moments. Only when I was there with my partner. When, it was, when I wasn't with her, it was just, you know, like, oh, he's here, oh, there's me, like, here's, here's him, you know, it was always like a gamble. There's always, you know, people running in and out, there was always fights in the elevators, fights in stairwells, fights at the front of the place, because people who didn't have motel rooms, they were waiting at the front, because there was people, of they, people that they known had motels, so half of them will be camping at the front of the motel, waiting for all the people that had rooms because you can't have visitors. So it was just, from inside to outside, it was just a mess. I could live like that on the street because you can't do nothing about it. But when it's a motel, like, you're supposed to feel comfortable. You're supposed to feel like, you know, you got this opportunity for a reason. You didn't, you didn't. Like, it just felt like, you know, the same, it felt like the same thing. It felt like an abandoned building getting run through, run through from a whole bunch of homeless people and just trashing it. I felt safe when, you know, when my door was shut. But when I was walking out, you know, you got to walk, you know, you look behind your shoulder. You didn't know who was behind you. You didn't know who was in your, in your level. It was just always people running in and out of doors. So there was always a door, a room that was always everyone walking in and out of. Yeah. in that moment it you know it numbs everything it takes the pain away it puts you in a different different universe different world you're not you're not homeless you're not you're not nothing you're you're feeling that buzz and you're feeling that ride and but then you come out of it you've got no money you've got nothing left and you're like <laughs> great and then it's the big spiral from there being like i wish i had more so i didn't feel how i feel now and then it's just so difficult to get out of so in a nutshell, there was no difficulty, like because of things like curfew and social distancing, there was no trouble getting alcohol or drugs during... Oh, it was probably easier, to be honest, because dealers were the only ones that... People that are under the influence or in that situation do not care. They, like, it blew my mind how fearless they were. They would just go out and do whatever they wanted. And so, you know, dealers drive around not caring because they've got to make bank because no one else is, there's no one anywhere. Everyone needs birth, apparently. And the the ice skyrocketed. Got expensive, I know that much. It was so accessible, like, you know, it, by the end of it, like, if you're wanting to get on, you're making friends out the front with people that are staying in the hotel. You know what room the dealer's in. You know what room everyone else is in. You can make a phone call and then go to their room like that and you got on. Like, you could get it in the hotel. 
which sometimes was handy because it was winter and it was raining and who the f*** wants to go outside? But at the same time, it's like, it was just super, for me especially, super scary how accessible it actually was during that time. So my um, choice of drug is nitrous oxide. So for anyone that doesn't know what that is, it's Nang's. So if you ever see those little silver canisters out in front of an IGA, that's the thing I'm sucking on. You put in a balloon and you get cooked. During the peak of COVID, before I became homeless, I was sitting in my private rental doing 800 a day, which for a lot of people, they're going to be like, holy shit. Like, you know, you buy them in boxes of 10s or boxes of 50s, and people can buy a box of 50 and be set for the night. I was doing 800 things a day. And they're not cheap, for starters. Um, the clean-up's a nightmare. And I ended up doing spinal cord damage burnt all my nerves on my spinal cord, I lost movement from my waist down and had to learn to walk again at the start of COVID. So that was that. And then when we moved into the hotels, there was a lot of prescription drugs in the sense of I got addicted to Lyrica, um, which is like a nerve nerve number kind of, kind of deal. You, you could get anything and everything you wanted. Regardless, regardless if you wanted it, you could get it. And so, you know, I started smoking weed a bit more. Not that that I'm, like, addicted to anything like that. It's more of a, like, yeah, cool, everyone's smoking, smoking joint. I'll smoke a joint, sweet. Nothing else to do. Cool. But then, stupidly enough, I thought I had, you know, gone from my addiction stage of the Nangs to back to recreational, where I can just, you know, have a quick session and be done with it. I clearly was lying to myself in that sense. Because you can easily get Nangs delivered to your door within 40 minutes of sending a text to the Nang delivery guys, which was, I should have known better. However, we don't know better when we're craving a Nang, eh? So I should have known better than to make that phone call, the initial phone call to bring them in to where I was staying. I should have, like, I'm very good with knowing my mental health and my addictive personality, and I should have known that it was probably going to spiral out of control like it did. And so the minute I knew I could send a text and get it there, game over. It just went back into this, would spend, literally I'd get paid, what, at that stage we're getting 1200 I'd spend 600 on the Saturday, 600 on the Sunday, and then for two weeks I'd be, I don't know, sit there and go into that spiral of, I hate my life, I've spent all my money, rah, rah, but then the next pay comes around and what are we doing? We're on the phone again and we're doing it. And so that's, when I moved, I kind of made that promise to myself that I wasn't going to make that phone call. Like I still get stupid texts being like, oh, names are on sale. And I'm like, that'd be the best. I'd love that right now. But I know the minute I bring that into the home, that's when the spiral will more than likely reoccur so yes I mean like I've done things that I never thought I would from being in the hotels like I always said um you know meth wasn't my thing I can still vouch it's not my thing I've done it but hated it because you know sleep and eating are my two favorite things you don't sleep and you don't eat when you do meth so I can confirm not for me but yeah I always feel like no I'll just get addicted like I know myself and I'm pretty lucky in the sense I do know my addictive personality and my mental health 
and I know what I do and don't like. I mean, if you bring me a bag of Keta, my nose is going to go straight into that bag and we're on. I mean, but yeah, I'm very happy to report gear, not for me. I mean, so yeah, there's, you know, I've done things that I said never would, but yeah, it's been a very interesting ride in that sense of the drug side of it. At the start, like, I, I was feeling like you know, I'm getting myself on track, but then I slowly you know, fell into what I was talking about, how people were coming in. That, so my drug use got... I ended up introducing myself to a wrong person. I wouldn't say his name, but I... And then that's when my drug, my drug use and got really bad because I had the money and it was... Like, I didn't even have to walk out the front door to the hotel. I just had to walk to the next door, my next room. And I was just getting it, getting it, getting it, and yeah, it was just because all all the all the all the drugs from under the sun were in that building. There was there was methamphetamines, weed, and there was heroin, and there was juice, GBH. That's the uh, liquid that everyone takes. So it was just it was just all there. Like you couldn't do nothing about it. Been using since I was a little kid. So when I when I was younger, I ran away from home and went to the streets and got introduced to methamphetamines at the age of 13, so it was pretty bad. So, yeah, and um, from then being introduced to methamphetamines, on the streets of Melbourne, there's, there's always people drinking. So I ended up jumping back on drinking when I was younger, going back and forward from couch, couches and my mates' houses. And then when I was old enough to finally get through these services and this is when the pandemic started. I got motels in that. So, yeah, I've just been using meth, methamphetamines for the last few years. I'm three weeks late now. But, yeah, when I was in the pandemic in the motels, that's when it ruined me. Like, I had my addiction, but my addiction was balanced before the pandemic. As soon as the pandemic came, that's when I was unbalanced. That's when I was just, you know, using it, using it, using it every day. My addiction got real out of hand and I didn't know who I was and what I was doing until I left the motel. It's like, wow, like, because the experiences I experienced in those, just those weeks of staying in motels, so many things happened in those, just so, those seven days. Like, I seen someone getting bashed, or I seen, you know, coppers running through raiding, like, six rooms on one floor. Like, just in those weeks, I seen, like, probably 30 things that normally people don't see. So there was a lot of drugs around, and that caused myself won't lie to I sort of get involved with that sort of lifestyle and I can't really you know put that on anyone else because it's my choice at the end of the day but at the same time if it wasn't around I wouldn't want it if that makes sense but it was everywhere literally drugs everywhere and um so it didn't make a big impact on my life a lot of different turns there so like the drug scene is very messy it also depends on who you hang out with in the drug scene because there is good and bad and then there's terrible. It's very messy. It's very, uh, there's a lot of problems when it comes to that sort of lifestyle because when you do meet people who sort of, what well, we all say, off their heads, 
they're the ones, yeah, the people that you kind of have to watch out for. They don't really care what you're doing, what you've got to say or anything like that. And that's when things can go wrong, you know, people like that. The non-right sort of state of mind. Yeah, that, that, that are, yeah, messy, very messy and dangerous in my opinion. And as my mum says, it's very dangerous, so. And it's not good. It's not. It's not really fun as much people think it is. So, yeah. <laughs> My own news. Honestly, I was clean three and a half years. As soon as I became homeless, I uh, hit the drugs. I used the uh, ice. I got hooked on it. I can't say that I, I'm addicted or withdraw from it because you can't actually do that. It's not in the drug. But that's a drug that. I used quite a lot and I have been on it for the last two years and six months. But today I'm actually three weeks clean, so that's pretty good. Uh, before that, just ice, ice, ice. Um, and I smoke occasional weed from time to time, but I don't think I don't know anyone who doesn't smoke any weed from time to time. But, yeah, ice was the main big problem of my life. My ice use became pretty full on back then, yeah, when I was in those motels to the point where, like, my whole pay would probably nearly go on it because the motels were being paid for, so I'd have all this money. Yeah, we'd go on that. Well, I guess there were a few concerns. I mean, on, on the surface, a lot of it was it was great. People getting, you know, a, a roof over their head when they hadn't previously. But then, you know, the, the fear really became for a lot of the clients, you know, that they had become so accustomed to living in hotels, they couldn't imagine being out on the streets again. And it was quite, I guess, an emotional journey for them to to worry about, okay, they're in hotel accommodation today, but will they get have it? next week or will they have it the week after what's what does that mean for them so there was a bunch of things like that there were concerns around certain hotels being a microcosm for some of the violence that was occurring on the streets and so if people owed their dealer and suddenly they were ended up in the same building as their dealer or people who knew their dealer and all of that sort of thing uh, different hotels had different policies. So some hotels were actually ringing us up asking for disposal containers because they acknowledged that clients were using drugs on site and they wanted to just ensure that the syringes were safely disposed of. And then at other hotels, people were sort of asking to meet us around the corner so they could maintain a level of anonymity and level of not disclosing to the hotel that they were using on site. So it was really different across the different sites and, you know, obviously the hotel staff, they're used to dealing with clients with money and who are yeah, used to, you know, the sorts of things that go with hotel accommodation, not dealing with um, poor people. And so that's, and so, yeah, a lot of hotel staff weren't, weren't trained to deal with, with anything that was going on as well. My name's James. I'm a drug and alcohol worker um, in harm reduction programs across a couple of organisations. And in that role, I've worked a lot of the needle and syringe desks, as well as doing mobile outreach, delivering syringes uh, to people um, who need them and um, occasionally doing the odd 
work in the COVID public health uh, work, such as during the, the lockdowns and providing assistance to people in some of the, the high-rise towers. So I've, I've had a bit of a diverse role during the, the COVID period uh, in terms of supporting people with drug and alcohol um, who need support. So, I mean, I was doing um, overnight NSP work during lockdown and some of those periods were incredibly busy and we were getting more people coming in overnight um, because if people need to use, they need to use. And then other times it was dead quiet. Often I think one of the, the big changes was the supply issue. So during, uh, because there's been less international travel, there's been far less heroin. The quality of heroin's gone down on the street. And so that's changed how people use heroin. Ice as a percentage has gone up or it went up during COVID. And so that changed things um, as well. And then, you know, some people were just using more because they had more disposable income for a short period of time. So, so things were constantly changing. And I don't know if there was necessarily one absolute tendency. In fact, I'd say things more tended to be mixed. That, yeah, so for some people, their drug use increased, for others it decreased. For some, yeah, for some having that extra money actually made people less likely to, to want drugs because they could start to make some of those more uh, significant life changes that was often what provoked them to take drugs in the first place. So, yeah, so, so you could have two entirely different reactions to, you know, increase or decrease usage depending on, on how that increase in cash impacted on your personal circumstances. So it's hard to say with any certainty that there was one particular, I guess, trend that emerged out of that. So I guess the response as a whole initially was a one-size-fits-all response because at the most basic form it was, no worries, all the rough sleepers will just go into hotels. And as things emerged over time and as we know as workers, there's lots of individual factors about whether a location like a physical location or even the way the room is or how many floors it's up and accessibility and stuff like that, whether that's appropriate for a person. I guess also looking at, you know, you've got, it's a broad brush, but you've got a lot of people with a lot of complex needs in the one area as well. So whether that's going to be helpful for some of our clients or maybe not so helpful. Yeah, my name's Rosie. I'm a mental health nurse. I'm based uh, in the city and my role is to work with clients. They have a mental health diagnosis. They are currently homeless or have a history of homelessness or at risk of homelessness. We support clients with whatever needs they identify at the time and sort of support them to kind of, yeah, have those needs met. I know that meth in particular became much more expensive, more difficult to get, therefore more expensive. So for our clients, like the financial burden of trying to continue their meth use was a bit challenging, which then leads to other, you know, other vulnerabilities that come in that with um, how people adapt to sort of 
be able to continue their use as well. And then I guess there were other clients where their use did increase when they were in hotel accommodation because it might have been more accessible in the hotel that they were staying at if they'd been, yeah, because if, if their peers are there and also using as well. Most of the clients I work with have a pretty significant AOD picture as well as a mental health picture. So, yeah, there was the journey around their use and their experience of their use continued. I guess a few of the challenges that came out of the hotel program for some clients, so some clients who rough sleep, it helps them feel connected to their community. It actually increases their engagement with the community. It actually increases their feeling of safety because they're in public and they're engaging with people. You know, people recognise them and people might support them in that space. And, you know, yeah, the, the, the four walls doesn't work for everyone. So it seems like it is a, it's a great idea, you know, housing first in the literal sense, which is, shelter so you you know you'll now be provided with shelter but obviously yeah it comes with other challenges around if that person might then feel more isolated if you know it's yeah having less contact with people and kind of less exposure and you know I guess a feeling of being of of being trapped and, and you know a feeling of you know having sort of rules and expectations which come with some of these buildings, like, and which came with COVID as a whole. It was just like, here, here's all these rules and expectations about how, how you're expected to live now. And sometimes putting those kinds of restriction on people, yeah, depending on their trauma history, can be really difficult for people, which then doesn't necessarily create more trust with the systems that we work in. It might create less trust with the systems that we work in. So, yeah, we had a lot of clients that were reporting, yeah, you know, depression and anxiety from being in the hotel and not wanting to be in there and, yeah, preferring to be outdoors. Yeah. Mental health was a big thing. Not really many people did anything, even including myself, um, and the drugs didn't make it easier, made it worse, if anything. That's why I think a lot of people got moved from motels because there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of... We didn't know what was going on behind those other motel doors at the time. And what you would hear sometimes is pretty... I didn't think that anyone, yeah, really seeked any help either. But it did affect mental health really bad because it affected mine, yeah. I had really bad mental health being in motel rooms. Not because of the motel, but because... We're just always sitting down, chilling, and you're not doing anything. You're just kind of head stuffing yourself with thoughts, and it just, you, yeah, wasn't really healthy. During my stay at the Alto, I would have, or even during COVID itself, I became a frequent flyer at the Royal Melbourne uh, for mental health and suicidal tendencies. Like, Ambos would take me there and I'd be like, we walk this way. They're like, what? I'm like, mate, I've got more frequent flies than Qantas give out, eh? Like, I know where I'm going. I've sorted it. So, like I said earlier, I'm very, very suicidal at times. And I refer to it as a chronic thing, not an acute thing. So when I mention it to workers or whatnot, 
Like, it's chronic. Don't stress. Like, as soon as you say the word suicide to a social worker, they're like, ambulance, zero, zero, zero. And I'm like, it's fine. I, I've like, I reckon I, I could want to die every day since I was 10, right? So it's not like this is a new feeling. Like, I'm very aware of it. And during COVID, especially when, you know, like, I didn't know where I was going. The lockdown, when lockdown four happened, I really spun out of control. That's when shit really hit the fan. And then I was in, I was in the hotel and I just, I'd fucking lost my mind, to be fair. And, you know, I, being bipolar at that time, I write stuff in a book because when I'm very bipolar, I can't express things verbally properly. And so I write stuff. So when I get into a hospital, I can hand it to them. And I remember, so the social worker called the ambulance. And I've got pages and pages of like an A4. No, it wasn't even A4. It was A5, so it was huge. Of just me writing me like, I want to die. I'm nothing. I'm this, I'm that. Like, there's no purpose in life. I don't know why I'm here. Kind of like, and I'm talking hectic shit. And they took me to the Royal. They put me, (laughs) didn't even put me straight through. They put me back into the ER. And I was like, sweet, great. Could have just got here myself, to be fair. Don't know why we needed the ambulance in all honesty. So then they took me through and I handed them the book. I explained the situation. I said, look, this is, I've been here before. This is like how I'm feeling right now, blah, blah, blah. They were like, it's too serious. It's too of a serious situation. Go home and call the mental health people. And at this stage, so, you know, they come and see you, then they go away and fiddle with their computer or all that bullshit. And I'm on the phone to my partner. I'm like, I just want help, like, bawling in hysterics. Being like, I just want help. Why won't anyone help me? I just want to die, like, screaming on the phone. Nurses, no one blinks an eye. No one turns around and no doctors are like, what the f... They're just, like, going about their day. And I was like, all right, cool. Nobody cares. Sweet. Send me home. I am on the phone to mental health nurse for three hours on hold. Finally get through, explain the situation. Her response was... It looks like you have to go to the hospital, the ER. And I'm like, you were taken the fucking piss. And at that stage, like, I just, I'm so angry by this stage. Like, not only am I like a depressed loser, but I'm getting angry that I can't get help. Like, I've been to the hospital. I come, been told they can't help me to go home, make that phone call that they've told me to do, and that phone call tells me to go back to the hospital. How is this helping anybody? This isn't going anywhere. And so... Then, like, yeah, that was the time where I was like, well, that's pointless. I'm never going back there. And it's now, like, if I'm the I'm, I surely am not the only one that has experienced this. And if people are now having it in their minds that they can't even call an ambulance or call a hospital when they're feeling like they want to die, what is the mental health system in this country doing? Listening to episode one of Homeless in Hotels Health, Services and Peer Voices in the COVID 19 pandemic. In episode two, we will turn our ear to hearing how peers access services during Melbourne's strict lockdown periods and how service workers had to adapt. I had a huge amount of anxiety and I 
felt concerned for the homelessness sector that was having to adjust its practice at the most phenomenal rate, trying to reassure consumers about what was going on, trying to get enough good information to consumers at the same time as services were managing anxiety amongst staff. And so it was just initially a very uncertain time and very demanding time for people, I think. And then, of course, we all realised, well, what's going to happen for people experiencing homelessness? How do we protect them um, during the pandemic? So it was every day there was new information and there were new challenges and trying to process those fast enough that that workers could actually go out and do their jobs effectively was really challenging. Um, well, I'd say it was definitely quite clunky. And I think, like, all the services that were involved were all trying to create their own processes and new processes at the same time. But I think it was all pretty vague, and it felt pretty vague at the time. It was something that, you know, obviously I saw in the media, it was something that was happening, but it was somewhere else, and then it became something that was here, and it looked like, yeah, it's going to be something that we'd actually have to deal with. Some of that was, like, working in that the kind of, I guess, a public health-type service, like an, an Eel Syringe program. This isn't our first rodeo in terms of responding to pandemics, and there's certainly been a number of times over the years where we've had to change the way we operate or, at the very least, screen people at, at attending the service because of you know, infection control purposes. I mean, the last one before this was actually Ebola. And that is something that we had to respond to as a, as a health service. And that's probably something that wasn't something as obvious to the wider public. But, you know, so in some ways it was kind of like, OK, so here's another one, but we should be able to manage this. Yeah. But then it became obvious that this was actually going to be a bit different and have a, a more kind of considerable impact on everything. Homeless in Hotels is a peer-produced series created by Kelly Whitworth and Patrick Spike Chiapalone at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne. For more information, visit homelessinhotels.net.